If you're new with us, we're working our way through Song of Songs. Today we come to the end of our series, which is quite sad to me. Not sure how you feel about that uh, this morning. And, but if it is your first time, this is actually a good week for you to be here because uh, what we are looking at at the end of this, this book is a, is a repeat of a lot of the same themes, and it's a great summary and kind of a final reflection upon all that has been said. And so you could act, it's almost like a, another introduction to the book. You could go back and, and restudy it in light of some of the things we'll look at uh, this morning. So let's pray together as we look at this marvelous passage of Scripture. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is true. It's flawless. It exalts our Lord Jesus. And we pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of the Bible would come now and illuminate our hearts and minds to understand it and be transformed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. What's even better than love songs, one writer asks. The 1980s love songs, they answer. They then go on to rank the 80s, and those of you who are a product of the 80s, you know about these, these love ballads that we, we endured, um, enjoyed. Various sites rank them differently. You can find Lionel Richie's Hello on most lists. As one writer says, this one will be on repeat for those working up the gumption to finally ask their object of affection, is it me you're looking for? Saving All My Love for You by Whitney Houston. This song, they say, is a wonderful example of her talent. Her performance on this track is so strong, you can practically smell the hairspray. <laughs> Number one on this particular list was Foreigners, I Want to Know What Love Is. Wholesome and desperate, they say, with a healthy dose of synthesizers. This ballad gets number one because it's just so darn sweet. That universally felt loneliness of heartache has given a sense of hope only foreigner can deliver. The writer Mick Jones said the song was probably written by a higher force. And the writers say, we believe it, buddy. We believe it. People love love songs. Why is that? I think it says something about the human heart. As one popular philosopher says, to be, a, to be human is to be a lover. And what we've been looking at in the Song of Songs is the love of loves. As we've said before, the Song of Songs is the best of all love songs. Solomon wrote lots of songs, but he could say this is the best. The song has God as its author. It shows the relationship between the shepherd Shepherd King and his bride reflects God's love for Israel and points ahead to Christ's love for the church. It's a book about love, about human love and divine love. And we've thought about the complexity of love in this series, as we've thought about the frustrations that this book can stir up. This life is filled with loss, it's filled with unfulfilled longings, it's filled with temptations in relationships, joys in relationships. Song of Songs is one of the books of the Bible that is classified as wisdom literature. Job, another book, helps us with the riddle of suffering in this world. Ecclesiastes, another wisdom book, helps us with the riddle of meaning. And Song of Songs is about the riddle of love. And all of those are very important for thinking about this life. How do you deal with suffering? What's the point of all of it? And how do we experience great love? And in this final passage, we see and hear the shepherd king and his bride once again. But they're not the only characters that come forward at the end of chapter 8. It's like the whole cast comes back out, and they have a final number. Many of the same themes, as I said, uh, come out again. We have Solomon and his vineyard. The bride's brothers return. 
Um, the bride in uh, verse 4, what Shane ended with last week, speaks that continuous refrain that we've heard throughout the book of to not stir up love until it's appointed time. We have another reference to the apple tree and another reference to coming up out of the wilderness. And there's a lot to learn here about God's relationship to his people, about Christ's relationship to the church, and about wisdom for our own relationships. So I want us to organize it around five related themes. Number one, companionship. Number two, love. Number three, purity. Number four, marriage. And finally, we'll end with longing. <clears throat> so first, companionship in verse five. Up to this point, there has been a lot of language related to romance that's made us uh, giggle at times, feel uncomfortable at times, uh, confused at times. But now we see something up, up in verse five that is very important to underscore, that there's, there's more to that than uh, more, there, there's more to marriage than those particular things. Here, companionship and the wider family are being celebrated. You see that tender note of com companionship at the beginning of verse 5. What is this that's coming up out of the wilderness? Leaning on her beloved. Likely here it's the daughters of Jerusalem that are asking this. And it seems that this couple is now returning home post-honeymoon in royal fashion. Like Israel who came out of Egypt to enter into the promised land, and like the later exiles that came out of Babylon returning back to Israel, so now this couple are returning back to this land flowing with milk and honey. And those pictures of being brought up out of the wilderness and taken into the promised land are Old Testament images of the gospel, of how we have been delivered for something greater than a wilderness in Egypt, namely bondage to sin, and have been brought into this new relationship with God and have been given the promise of new creation. All of that language is here as the writer is speaking about this tender, warm, affectionate relationship between this, this bride and her husband. The scene is very warm, it's very affectionate, and it's a beautiful phrase, isn't it, that she's leaning on her beloved. It's a picture of, of ease, a picture of, of trust, we, we've seen the, the bride be very anxious at various points in the book, but now that anxiety is replaced as she's leaning upon her beloved. There's companionship and closeness and security. When we first met the couple at the beginning of the book, they were single and needed a cold shower. And now they're united and they're arm to arm as she is returning back into her homeland. It's kind of the thing that C.S. Lewis described when he was talking about the warmth of marriage and companionship, when he says it's mere ease and ordinariness that he really enjoys. He says, no need to talk, no need to make love, no need at all except to stir the fire. Another reference to the fire pit, right? Um, and it's that kind of non-sexual image that is striking because it's highlighting that there's more to marriage than that. There's friendship, there's, there's closeness, Previously, the bride says, this is my beloved, this is my friend. So it's important to remember that Song of Songs is, is highlighting more than sexual intimacy in marriage. It's also highlighting friendship and companionship. Further, it is also uh, is, is talking about the wider family that you now enter and the community that you now belong to. And you see this reference to the earlier encounter of the apple tree. Under the apple tree I awakened you, there your mother was in labor uh, with you. There she bore you as uh, you, let me read that all over again. 
Uh, under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. <clears throat> you got to read that, and you're like, man, there's a lot happening under that apple tree. Um, I think I'll avoid it uh, at all costs. The apple tree was, uh, as one writer says, the sweetheart tree of the ancient world. It was symbolic of romance. So she's saying, under that apple tree, I awakened you. And the mention of the apple tree and his birth reminds us that, this, that, that in marriage it is a family affair. It doesn't mean that, she, that, that he rather was literally born under this particular apple tree, but the metaphor is showing what the apple tree represents, sexual intimacy, and the result of that act, which is offspring. And so what's being noted here is this, this flow of family history. The groom's mother gave birth, and now this couple carves their name into the family tree, as it were. They are part now of this family genealogy. So their love is more than just personal and private love. It's also publicly recognized, celebrated within the wider community and the family. It's a very delightful picture of companionship and the way God has designed uh, this world to work in relation to family. And a beautiful image, even a redemptive image, I would say, that she is leaning upon her beloved. And today the church leans on our beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do, anxiety and fears are removed when we draw near to him. The best of all companions is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's brought us up out of the wilderness of sin, brought us into his embrace, and he's taking us to a new creation. Companionship. But secondly, we also see love. Verses 6 and 7 is probably the poetic high point of the entire book. And it's as close as we get to a definition of love in the entire book. And it's the only explicit mention of the Lord in the entire book. So, what is love? It's a very important question today, isn't it? And many people have a variety of answers for it. Rock singer Pat Benatar said love is a battlefield. That's not a bad definition, actually, right? That love has the power to encourage you and bless you like nothing else. And love has the power to rip your heart out. It's a battlefield. That great theologian Bruce Lee said, love is like friendship caught on fire. In the beginning, a flame, a very pretty, often hot and fierce, but still only light and flickering. As love grows older, our hearts mature, and our love becomes coals, deep, burning, and unquenchable. I'm not sure if he was reading verses 6 and 7, but he's sort of getting at it, isn't he? Friendship on fire. Multiple metaphors are describing here the nature of love and how human love is an echo of God's divine love. So notice five things that the writer says about love. First, love is public and passionate. As we read, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. So there's something external, something public, a seal upon your arm, and something internal, a seal upon your heart. A seal in the ancient world was uh, the way you would prove your identity. Sometimes people would wear the seal around their neck. They would use it to sign official documents. It was like our signature today. And the bride's words here is, is expressing their covenant commitment that they have to each other that would be publicly recognizable, very similar to a wedding ring today. That ring is signifying something to the public that you are in relationship to your spouse. 
So it's public, but it's also passionate. You notice that they're bound together inwardly. As she says, set me as a seal upon your heart. Love is permanent and public, but it's also deep and passionate. This strong commitment that this image conveyed is, is illustrated uh, in the enduring love of couples, that there is this inward bond to each other and their public acts that display that you are bound together. I love the story of B.B. Warfield. He was a well-known theologian in the 19th and 20th century whose writings continue to bless the church, especially his writings about the inspiration of Scripture. And he taught systematic theology for over 30 years at Princeton Seminary. But he wasn't just a great theologian. He was a devoted husband to his wife, Annie, who endured many years of suffering. One writer describes his commitment to his wife, saying, Warfield married at age 25, and the happy couple traveled to Germany for their honeymoon. Tragically, they were caught in a severe thunderstorm, and Annie was struck by lightning. This traumatized her mentally and physically so severely that she was an invalid for the rest of her life. Warfield gently cared for his wife every day for the next 40 years. In fact, he basically stayed uh, in Princeton for the rest of their marriage, leaving home only for an hour or two at a time, mainly to lecture to his students and rarely venturing for, uh, farther away than walking distance. He lovingly set aside time from his studies to read to Annie every day. People in town said of the great theologian, he had only two interests in his life, his work and Mrs. Warfield. She was a seal upon his heart, a seal upon his arm, describing the beauty of love, an internal passionate commitment and a love that is expressed in public acts of commitment. Great echoes of Christ's love, who loved us and gave himself for us. As we sing, our names are graven on his hands, and our names are written on his heart. In passionate love, Jesus Christ went to the cross publicly for us, and we are his. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This love that the writer is describing is a public and passionate love, but it's also, notice in verse 6, a strong and fierce love. You see in the text here, love is paralleled with jealousy. As he says, for love is strong as death, jealousy is as fierce as the grave. And death and the grave are set in, uh, in parallel uh, uh, spots as well. So love is like jealousy. There's a similarity. He's trying to bring out this, this sort of single-minded commitment to true love. And this jealousy, we're reminded of, of God's own jealousy and his own holy love. As we read in places like Exodus 34, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Now there's a jealousy that's sinful, isn't there? But there is a jealousy that's fitting as well. And in marriage, couples belong uniquely to each other. This love is a jealous love, and it's fierce in that it is as strong as death and the grave. Look at that text again, how love is, is, is compared to death and is compared to the grave. He doesn't say that love is as strong as an ox or as fast as a horse, but it's as strong as death. Why would he use death? <clears throat> well, is there anything stronger than death? Even the mighty. <laughs> We're raising up preachers up in here. I love this. Another reason why I like kids in corporate worship, by the way. 
is there anything stronger than death? God is. Um, <laughs> but before we get there, he's a little ahead of my sermon. Uh, <laughs> that, lo- that death is irreversible. Even the most powerful of people cannot overfeat, uh, overtake death in and of themselves. So he says, love is as strong as death. But there is something stronger than this kind of, than, than death. And we read about it in the gospel, don't we? There is only one love that's greater than the grave, greater than death. God's love for his people is stronger than the grave. In Jesus Christ, the one who conquered death on our behalf, because of that, we will be loved forever. Not even death can undo the love that Jesus has for his people. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Love is public and passionate. It's strong and fierce. Thirdly, love, human love, is an echo of God's love. Notice the third part of verse 6 when he says, its flashes are flashes of fire. It's meaning jealousy. This jealous love are flashes of fire, but not just flashes of any kind of fire. It's flashes of the very flame of Yahweh. Or it's actually the abbreviated form of Yahweh. It's, it says the very flame of Yah. So what it's saying is that if you experience some kind of jealous love, particularly in a marriage, that it is an echo of God's love, that that love came from somewhere. We read in 1 John, God is love. And here we see something about the nature of God's love in that God does not love in a way that is cool and indifferent, but in a way that is hot and passionate. God loves his people fiercely. He loves his people intensely. And any kind of uh, love that we have that has that kind of intensity owes it existence to God himself. That every human expression of love or jealousy derives its source and meaning from God's love and God's jealousy. His companionship on fire. And this is what you long for in a marriage. And this is what, whether or not you're married, you have in God's great love. God's great love for us is fierce. It's passionate. It's like fire. He loves us intensely. Fourthly, we see here that this love is unquenchable. Notice in verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. Love cannot be swept away by a mighty flood. He's basically saying that love prevails. 1 Corinthians 13, love endures. Israel had many great waters in its history. The Red Sea, the Jordan River, none of these could stop Yahweh's love for his people. Even the great flood of Noah could not stop that love as God remembered Noah. Because God's love is so ablaze, it cannot be quenched. It is an eternal fire. And finally, he says, that love is also priceless. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. To put it in modern vernacular, money can't buy love. This is probably a critique of the historical Solomon, who is critiqued later in the text. He had everything that money could buy, but he did not have that which was priceless, real love. Love offers us something more than gold and anything else that you can have. And money can't buy the greatest thing you could ever experience, salvation. If you want love, if you want saving love, you can't purchase it. It's actually free. 
The best thing in life and death is yours freely, to know God through Jesus Christ. God's love is so amazing that he gave the most valuable thing in the world for you already, namely his own son. And to see the most astonishing expression of love in human history, we need only to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you look to the cross, you see passionate love, permanent love, public love, and priceless love. And on Sunday morning, Jesus showed the world that there is a love stronger than the grave. This is the relationship all of us have been called into. The greatest of all relationships. Jesus loves his bride, and he will love her to the end of all ends. He will love her throughout eternity. He loves us this very moment with a jealous, passionate, unending love. So there's companionship here. There's love here. Thirdly, there is the theme of purity. Verses 8 and 9, the text says, We have a little sister. She has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Because a loving marriage is a priceless gift, then one is wise to do everything that he or she can to protect their purity. The book of Proverbs speaks a lot about the wisdom of purity. For example, Proverbs 6.32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. And now that sort of practical point is being made here in the book, only not to men. Most of the, the instructions in Proverbs are directed to young men. Here, to young women. Who's speaking? We'll, we don't exactly know. It says others. That's helpful. Um, most likely, it's the bride's brothers. Previously, they were presented in a negative light. Now here, I think, more in a positive light as those who want to protect uh, their sister. Now, you read verses 8 and 9, just know that these, these verses are not easy to interpret. And so we, we'll move to verse 10. <laughs> Kidding. You know, we just step into all the awkwardness here uh, in Song of Songs. Um, the, uh, the wall and a door, the, the question is, what's the relationship? Are these terms, these metaphors, parallel to each other? That is, they're saying the same thing, or are they set in contrast to each other? And I think we're helped just by the, the rest of the flow of the text to, to go with the latter, that these, these images are set in contrast. That the wall, if she is a wall, means that she is sexually pure. If she is a door, means she's sexually promiscuous. I take them as images contrasting chastity and promiscuity. If she demonstrates purity, then they will honor her as a tower of silver. She'll be given a certain freedom in responsibility if she is a wall. Later you notice in verse 10 that the, the bride says, I was a wall, speaking about how she saved herself for her husband. On the other hand, if she is a door, they will enclose her and board her up, as it were, in order to protect her. Again, it's poetry, but you see the, the image of wanting to protect the vulnerable, sort of restricting her freedom so that she does not make foolish choices. Now, the bride's story you know, as we've looked at, is not one where, you know, she had no passions of her own. She could not wait to kiss this guy. That's how the book opens. But yet she surrendered her sexuality to God's glory. And the book is saying that's wise and that is good and that is best. It's not always easy, but it's worth it. And her testimony speaks for herself as we transition to this fourth theme of marriage. 
specifically God's good design for marriage. She contrasts here her exclusive relationship with her husband to the life of Solomon, who had many women. And she says that my relationship, the, the choice that I made, has actually brought peace and blessing to me and my husband. But Solomon's life did not bring those blessings because he did not follow God's good designs. You see, God's good designs are not to stifle enjoyment and satisfaction, but actually provide it. So she says of herself, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. She says, I was a wall. I protected my purity. And now she says, I'm a, a mature woman. And these godly decisions has brought peace. She has brought peace to her husband. When he sees her, it brings him peace. And if you've, if you've traveled before and you're in a healthy marriage, you know that there is a sense of anxiety when you're not with your spouse. And when you see them, there's a sense of relief. There's a sense of ease. And it's such a blessing, as Proverbs says, speaking about the husband, the heart of her husband trusts her. To be able to trust in your spouse, bringing peace. That's what good, God's good designs should bring to us. They bring blessing. They bring peace. Again, great echoes of the greatest relationship that we, could be, that we could experience, namely to know God through Jesus Christ. That is what brings ultimate peace and ultimate blessing. But there's something else that brings peace, we could say, in application, and that is repentance. Lest you find yourself at any point in this study feeling the weight of your sin in this area, you should know that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And in God's kindness, we can experience peace when we turn from sin and folly and, and, and selfishness, and we turn back to God in commitment and dedication. This is what we do with our sin. We bring it to God, and we ask for forgiveness, and we ask for healing. And I want to encourage you to believe that God is still in the process of, of, of or still in the, in the business of doing that kind of great restorative work in the lives of people. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones put it on one occasion, even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin, but God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside the love of God or outside his kingdom because of adultery. Know if you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven, and I can assure you of pardon. The God of peace cleanses and gives peace. The bride is talking about her own experience here. She was a wall. Great blessing has ensued as a result of following God's good design. And then she brings up the life of Solomon, who is a great contrast to her. When she says Solomon had a vineyard at Belhaman, literally the, the lord of the crowd, is what Belhaman means. He led out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, she says, my very own is before me. You, O Solomon, may have your thousand, and the keepers of, of the fruit two hundred. Vineyard here refers to her body, and Solomon had lots of vineyards. That is, he had literally and figuratively, he had lots of women, lots of wealth. In fact, so he had so many women, he had to hire someone to take care of them. But he didn't have a real relationship that brought satisfaction like she has. And so she's essentially saying, you can keep your harem. You can keep your, 
your, all your women, multiple sexual encounters does not bring wholeness and satisfaction. It brings brokenness, disappointment, and heartache. And what she's essentially saying is there is peace and fulfillment in following God's will. God's good design for marriage. She has one body. She has given it to her shepherd king. And her man is fully satisfied with her fruits. And he needs no other. Marriage. Finally, the book in, ends in a very interesting way. I would say as interesting as it opens, it ends. And that is the theme of longing. We see here at the end of the book, the couple going off into a garden. Sounds very familiar. Going into a garden, naked and unashamed. As I said before, in Song of Songs, there are many echoes of Eden in this book. And we ourselves long to return to paradise. And you see that the book ends with this couple having a mutual desire for each other. Mutual longing for each other. And so the king cries out in verse 13, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. That is, he wants to know where she is. And she responds with a passionate request. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. This is very, very wonderful. More metaphors, but you know what's on her mind. This, this lady has not stopped all book, really. Her first word, kiss me. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now his last word, you young stag, make haste, make haste. For those of you who may have never read the Bible, I don't know if there's anybody here, you've never heard even a sermon, you may find it surprising that a book of the Bible ends the way this book ends, with the couple longing to be together. There's no real conclusion to the book, just like there was no real introduction to the book. We're basically left hanging. And I think there's something about this, showing us that love is not static, it's dynamic. Beginning, let him kiss me. Ending, come away, my beloved. It's an idyllic picture of a couple in love longing to be with each other. It's a picture of the marriage everyone wants. And it's not the only book of the Bible that ends this way. There is another book of the Bible that ends with longing. With the bride saying, essentially, make haste, my beloved. And not just any book of the Bible. But the last book of the Bible, Song of Song ends with the bride and groom moving close to each other, and that's how the book of Revelation ends as well. Revelation twenty-two seventeen: the spirit and the bride say, come. And Jesus said to his bride, surely I am coming soon. And it's as if the bride, we can hardly wait, and we say in response, amen, come Lord Jesus. Make haste, Lord Jesus. The Bible ends with a holy longing a longing greater than any other longing to see and be with Jesus. And that is why, whether you're single or married, we know that the answer to these longings is only found in one place, and that is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The bride and the groom at the end of Revelation are so close, almost touching each other, but not quite. The final word ends with longing, a longing to be together. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to know you're made for that kind of relationship. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, he has put eternity in our hearts. Another way to say, there is a longing. There is an emptiness. There is an ache that can only be satisfied by the God who made you. 
that can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. Riken summarizes this portion of Song of Songs beautifully when he says, Jesus Christ is worthy of our every desire because his love is everything we see in the Song of Songs and more. Whether we are married or single, male or female, this is the love we have always wanted and needed. Lean on Jesus the way a bride leans on her beloved husband or the way John leaned against his loving Lord Jesus at the Last Supper, and he will support you through every trouble. Your Savior has set his seal upon your heart, upon his heart. His love will never leave you or forsake you. If you know Jesus by faith, then he has placed his seal upon you, the seal of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of eternal life. You are his, and he is yours forever. The love of Jesus is as strong as death, no stronger. He loved you all the way to, the, to death on the cross, but his love did not die in the grave. His death was the defeat of death, and therefore on the third day he rose again with the power of eternal love. His triumphant love for you can never be extinguished by any doubt, drowned by any sorrow, or quenched by any enemy, which means that the song of his love for you will never, ever end. His love is everything we see in the Song of Songs and more. So my friends, lean on him. Love him. Long for him. Spurgeon, who loved this book, said, The Song of Songs is a central book of the Bible. It is the innermost shrine of divine revelation, the holy of holies of Scripture. And if you're in living communion with God, you will love this book. You will catch its spirit, and you will be inclined to cry with the spouse, Make haste, my beloved. And we are inclined to say, with this bride at the end of the book to the Lord Jesus, make haste. As we live in this world of sin and shattered dreams, a world of death and disappointment, a world of grief and groanings, we cry out, make haste, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Your bride is ready. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we thank you for what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, for a love that is stronger than death, an eternal love that we have with him. And Lord Jesus, we long to see you. We long to be with you, to see you face to face when our faith ends in sight. And we know that one day all of these human longings and groanings will be satisfied when we are with you forever. And we bless you. We thank you for what you have done for us to give us these amazing promises and this unshakable hope. And we think about that now in the Lord's Supper. So continue to work in our hearts as we continue to worship you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.